Lord, we come before you and we ask that you just guide and lead us as we start the study of the book of Esther and and see this the story of two wonderful women that are brought out and the salvation of your people. And we just thank you for that and ask for your, your spirit to lead. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, book of Esther. A little bit of history about the book of Esther. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, there's... The two names that are most often put forth is Ezra, described it as two books before this, or Mordecai, the chief character who's raised up. But there is no proof as to who wrote it. Nobody, nobody knows. It's been part of the canon. Uh, we don't know when it was written. Sometime within that period of time, either at the, uh, just, be, just after the Jews were returned to Israel, or as much as 30 years, if it was Ezra, it could be as much as 30 years afterwards. And... The book has some controversy because it is the only book in the Bible that does not have the, the word God in it. But it definitely has the authority of God and the power of God and right. him orchestrating everything. So it definitely shows the providence of God, but it does not use his name anywhere in the book. Uh, so there were a lot of people who say it doesn't belong in the Bible, but it's been part of the Hebrew Bible canon, so it was accepted and has been accepted for the most part. The, the book of uh, Esther is, is part of what the Jews use. It's called the Migaloth Scrolls. And the, the books that are used in this uh, reading in the Migaloth Scroll is Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Esther. And these are, these are the books that are read during, during the various holidays. Song of Solomon during the Passover, uh, which is the story of the of Solomon and his bride and it's also Passover is the Jesus you know, being the Passover lamb for the church so it's uh, Ruth the book of Ruth is read on Pentecost and Pentecost is the birth uh, for Christians is the celebration of the birth of the church and Ruth is all about the redeeming and and the founding of uh, the Jewish king line because she's the uh, her and Boaz are the relatives of da uh, the four, four, four bearers of David <laughs> Uh, Lamentations is read uh, on uh, a holiday that uh, for the lamentation of the temples being destroyed, and that's both temples, the 256 and the 78. Ecclesiastes is read on the Feast of Tabernacles, and that is the celebration for the Jews of their time in the wilderness, or celebrations may not be the best word, but is a memorial of their time in the in the wilderness. And uh, then the book of Esther is read during the Feast of Purim. And basically the story of Esther is the foundation of the Feast of Purim. Purim. And what is the Feast of Purim? Feast of Purim is just a celebration of the fact that uh, Esther was able to help, uh, get a, save the Jews from being destroyed. And it really means lot, and that's how they decided... Lots were, ca lots were cast to decide when they were going to be killed. All right, the outline of the book is a pretty easy, easy book to outline. The first part is all about the feasts, and basically it goes into the fall of Vashti, the queen, from, from favor, and the uh, rise of Esther through the beauty contest that's going to be uh, done to bring her to bring her into into the queen's position. The second part is basically the whole rest of the story, and it's uh, going to be more Mordecai saving the king's life, Haman's rise to power, Mordecai, Mordecai being honored, Haman plans for the destruction of the Jews, and Esther requests the, the protection of her people, and then Haman is hung. And that is pretty much the, the bulk of the story and where we'll go. And the last part is the Feast of Purim, how it got started and how they practiced it. And that gets us basically the history of this book uh, and where we're going to go. And so we're going to start looking at the verses now. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, that this is the Ahasuerus which reigned from India even to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, provinces that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Susan the palace, in the third year of his reign he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power 
the power of Persia and Meda, the nobles, the princes, and the provinces being before him. And when he showed the riches of his glor glorious kingdom and all the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even 180 days. All right, so we're going to stop there because this is... First off, we're going to look at Ahasuerus is most people considered him to be Xerxes. And that was the Xerxes who ruled toward the end. He is the son of Cyrus. Cyrus the Great is the one who sent the Jews back to Babylon. So this is our history. This is a mighty king. Xerxes is a powerful king. Uh, he's a great general, despotic ruler, but he maintained his government real, you know, with an iron hand. And it says that he ruled from India all the way through cradle of Macedonia, all the way down the coast of Judah, and all the way down into Egypt. If you look at a map of the kingdom of uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, you will see he had one of the larger kingdoms that had, that were in existence. But it had a very large. He had a large territory. And it was split up, as we see, by, amongst all kinds of different 20, 127 provinces, uh, 20, 20 overall, and then those ones were broken down into sub-provinces. And history tells us all of, all of this about the, that kingdom, and it just reiterates it here. And it says that he was on his throne in his kingdom in the Shushan Palace, which is his winter palace. Not that you're going to know that, but I'm going to let you know. It's his winter palace. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast. And this is a, quite interesting because for his first years of his kingdom, he was at war. So he spent a lot of time at war. And then in his third year, he has this six-month party. And it doesn't mean, this particular word does not mean he had just one big party, but it was a continuous he sat there and everybody just came and went from this party for six months, 180 days. And it doesn't mean everything was shut down. There's a lot of people who go, well, you can't shut down a country for, for six months. So they probably could have if they wanted to. But, but this was just an ongoing feast and, and basically a great big time of eating and drinking. And they fed everybody and a very big drain on the budget as he's feeding his generals. But this is also historical that he spent almost a year planning his next, uh, a year to three years from different people's sources, planning his next military campaign. And if they were so drunk they couldn't think, I could make, understand why it took three years. <laughs> uh, you know, they have a six-month party, they're not going to be too clear-headed. But he has this big, long party, all the nobles, the princes, the the generals, everybody, you know, all, the, all the big shots are involved. And he's, and he's basically showing off his kingdom. He's conquered a lot of places, and he's showing off his kingdom. If you remember at the end of Daniel, when, uh, or the end of the Babylonian Empire, they were having this big drunken brawl while they were being surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. <laughs> and Belshazzar, and uh, remember the handwriting on the wall, where the hand writes on the wall that you're, you, you, have been, you have been weighed and, and found wanting, your, your days are numbered, and in the middle of their drunken ball, brawl, the Medo-Persians come in and <laughs> conquer the city. And they'd been surrounded for a long time, and you know, this was how confident they were in their city not being able to be conquered, that they were just having a great big wild party. <laughs> and so here we're seeing the same type of thing. A great big wild party he's showing off. And at the end of the, uh, Israel's time with them, uh, the, uh, Judah's time, excuse me, the king had brought in the enemy, Babylon, and showed them all the riches of his kingdom. <laughs> and, the, and the prophet came in and said, why did you show them this? And who are they? And he goes, what did you show them? And, you know, and he said, I showed him everything. He was showing off, and kings did, had a habit of doing this. Let me show you how powerful I am, how rich I am. And here we have Xerxes or Ahasuerus doing the same thing. You know, I'm going to show you what I have. Here's my riches, and he's parading his riches out. And you know, here's all the people that I've conquered, and here's the lands that we have, and here's the treasures from those lands. And we have a lot of pride going on in this at this time, and he's being a show off. The inner show off, and, and, and that's what verse 4 says. So he showed the riches and glories of his kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty. So we have this party where he's just going, hey, let me show you everything I've got. 
And we see that even in today's world, we see that, you know, if people get proud of their, you know, they buy a new, buy a new car or, or even a new house. Hey, come on, you've got to see my new car. You've got to see my new house. You've, you know, so there's nothing new. I mean, we've talked a lot about there's nothing new under sun. And, you know, this guy is showing off. He's saying, look how good I am, how, how important I am. And we're seeing that set up. And we know that Xerxes was a despotic ruler. I mean, he, whatever he wanted to do, he did. And so we're going to see that character flaw in him being displayed even further. Verse 5, And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and green and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rings and pillars of marble and beds of gold and silver upon a, a pavement of blue, red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse from one another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was in according, according to the law, none did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So let's look at this. After he was done with this big party, you know, festival. I think festival's a better word for what he did for 180 days. He just had a festival. Come and go as you want. You know, the, he fed everybody, gave them drink and everything. Now he plans a party. <laughs> and this one's a little different. He's having a great feast. And this is a seven-day feast. Now, in our days, we don't think of feast being this way. But in the older... In those days, feasts often lasted for multiple days to, to weeks. And this is a big feast. And it's for all the inhabitants of the palace. So it's basically nobles. But he says great and small, you know, small. So from the highest nobles to the lowest court courtiers. You know, so this is, not a king, this is not a festival for every single person out there. And you will note that it doesn't say it here, but because it says Vashti's doing it too, this is for the men. This seven-day feast is for the men. And what we're going to set the stage, because in that day, as it is still pretty much in the Muslim world, <laughs> women and men do not mix. <laughs> the men would do things and the women would do things. And when a woman was in the presence of a man, as they are still in the Muslim world, they had to have themselves totally covered up with veils and, you know, they just were not in the, the scene basically as a woman. They were... And you can see it even in today's world when you see pictures of a traditionally dressed Muslim woman. She's wearing clothes that just don't show anything. They're like a big bag over her, and it's to not show her femininity and entice lust and all that other stuff that goes along with it that they say. But this is where they're at here. This feast that he's given is for the men. And we see a couple of in things about this feast. First, it tells us how it was decorated. And you can picture this blue, uh, green and blue and white hangings all over the place. Great big pillars of marble. And these cords that it talked about in the original language are, these are a cord and linen that's from Egypt. It was of the finest quality. I mean, these were expensive. He's again showing off. He's getting the finest linens, the finest curtains, the finest cord he could find to tie them off. He's laid this mosaic pavement with red and blue and white and black marble. Uh, we, we can picture what that would look like if you've ever been to the fancy places with the mosaic marble. And it said they had beds of gold and silver. And these literally are couches, more reclining couches. So he's having a great... You know, he's putting on, he's showing the opulence of what he's got. He's wanted to show, hey, I'm still special, and now he's showing it off to his own, his own people. And it says, it gave them drinks, drink in vessels of gold, and the vessels of different, diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. So there, this is a drinking party. Plain and simple, this is a drinking party. Uh, the whole purpose of this is there's going to be food, but it's, it's drinking. And the cups were diverse in size and shapes. It wasn't that everybody was drinking from the same cup like would normally be in a, in a feast. And it says the royal wine. 
And the royal wine is a strong wine, spiced and, and flavored, and, and, and it is designed for one purpose. <laughs> it's a strong wine. It's designed to get drunk. And that's all that they're looking at on this. And it was and he says, none did compel them to drink. The usual practice in the Persian kingdom was in this was that everybody would be compelled to drink. There was toasting going on all the time. And when you get a toast, just as in this day and age, when the toast is given, everybody is expected to participate. Right. And in this case, they would, in their case, they usually toasted constantly. And so basically they were there to get drunk. Got toasted. They got toasted in their toast, yes. And here it says that they could do it every man. So if a guy didn't want to get drunk, he, he wanted to just drink a little, he could drink a little. If he drink a, wanted to drink a lot, he could drink a lot. And most of them drunk a lot. <laughs> and then it goes, And Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So Vashti is the queen, and she said, Okay, he's having one for the party for the men, we're going to have a party for the women. Ashuerus, and that's, he's also Xerxes? He's known in Greek as Xerxes. Xerxes. And Vashti, the only place we're ever going to see Vashti is here in this scripture. We don't know much about her, and history doesn't say what happened to her after she's disposed. So we don't know if she lived and lived in obscurity or was killed, most likely killed, but... Uh, I don't think she lived. I think they killed her. Yeah. I think she was done away with. Probably, but history doesn't tell us one way or the other. Right. So we can't probably make that... wasn't pretty enough to have a coffin and a... Yeah, well, well, she was disposed, so she wouldn't have been... She wouldn't have lost her right to have all that. Right. So... So Vashti's having a feast for the women, and again, remember, women and men don't mix, which is getting ready to set up our really big problem. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Biktha, and Abatha, and Zepha, and Karkas, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vasti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned within him. So we see the big issue here. Uh, he sends these seven chamberlain to go get her. And a lot of people believe that this was seven requests for her, not just one. And it doesn't really say it one way or the other, but I don't know why he would send seven people to get one. <laughs> one queen, so I kind of give some credence to this, that he sent seven calls to her and gave her seven opportunities to respond. Right. Uh, it would make sense, but there's no absolute proof. I'm not gonna, if somebody says that he just sent seven people to bring her, that's fine, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not gonna take a stand either way. Uh, I don't think that he would have sent seven people unless it was seven separate, <laughs> separate calls. And their message was to bring her before the king with the crown royal and show the people her uh, the, the princess and the to princess, her beauty. Huh? To walk out there and sashay. See everybody, see how pretty I am. Yes. You know, and basically we think about this. So she's going to refuse, and we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read an excerpt out of a, a book called All the Women of the Bible that really praises her because she was being very honorable to the rules. They were to be kept separate. You did not parade yourself in front of men other than your husband. And to show her beauty meant definitely that she would have had to have taken the veil off and, and to have appeared other than the normal in public. Uh, now, how un, uh, as opposed to normal, that's a big question. Uh, Josephus indicates that she was commanded, and the Jews believe that she was commanded to appear only with the crown on. But I don't know if it was that bad. Uh, but even if it wasn't, it's still against her modesty to come out to show herself to anybody other than her husband. And so I just want to read, because this gives a different view of Vashti than most people have. Most people look at Vashti and say, well, she was just being obstinate and, and disobedient. Uh, having done a lot of research on it, I don't think she was being obstinate and disobedient. She was actually being very virtuous and wanting to keep her virtue. And if, if, even if it was to do, even if she was just to come out and be ogled by a bunch of drunken, <laughs> drunken men, that's not something that any woman that, with any virtue would want to do anyway. 
So I just want to read this. It's a long section, but it's, I just want to read it because it was quite interesting because it gives us some background on it. And it comes from the book, All the Women of the Bible. And it's just excerpted out of it. Although the story of Vashti covers only a few paragraphs in the book, yet in the setting of Oriental grandeur, we have the elements of imperishable drama. When the bulk of the book revolves around Esther from the point of view of the shining character in the story is the queenly, queenly Vashti, who is driven out because she refused to display her lovely face and figure before the lustful eyes of a drunken court. By birth, Vashti was a Persian princess possessing with her, along with her regal bearing, an extraordinary fragile beauty. Although her husband was king who reigned from Italy, India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, her self-respect and high character meant more to her than her husband's vast reign, realm. Rather than cater to the vanity and sensual, sensuality of drunkards, she courageously sacrificed a kingdom. Rather than lower the white banner of woman modesty, Vashti accepted disgrace and dismissal. The only true ruler that in that drunken court was the woman who refused to exhibit herself even at the king's command. The demand. An impressive banquet was held in Susa, the capital of Persia, lasting for seven days, with the king and his dignitary and his dignitaries joining with hundreds of invited guests with an unceasing whirl of festi festivities during which wine flowed freely. Both great and small were to be found in the court and the garden of the palace. Then came the crowning touch of the drunken tyrant's cap caprice. caprice. When the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, drunk, <laughs> He commanded that Vistri, his royal consort, appear before the guest. For, for a week inflamed with wine and adulation, he had displayed the magnificent wealth and power of his kingdom, and the princes had poured flattery on him. Now was the climax. Let all the half-drunken guests see his most lovely possession, Queen Vashti, who was probably the most beautiful woman in his kingdom. He wanted the intoxicant, jubilant lords of the feast to feast their eyes on her. The Bible plainly, plainly declares that Ahasuerus summoned his wife to the feast simply to show her beauty. Had the king been sober, he would not have considered such a breach of custom, for he knew that eastern women live in seclusion and that such a request as he had made in his drunken condition amounted to a gross insult. For Vasti to appear in the public hall, though dressed in her royal robes and crown, which is what he's talking about, he said, he's saying that she was to be fully dressed in her regal, regal robes, which I, what I really think was happening, uh, would almost be as degrading for a modern woman in our modern world to go naked to a, to a men's party. And this is how serious the, the Orientals look at that. The, the Middle East women are not to be paraded in front of people. So, And he's drawing that same conclusion. It would be as, as bad for our day. When Ahasuerus demanded, what Ahasuerus demanded was the surrender of her womanly honor and Vashti, who was neither vain nor wanton, was unwilling to comply. Uh, Plutarch reminds us, that's a writer, <laughs> us that in the, it was the habit of the Persian king to have his wife beside him at his banquet, but when he wished to riot and drink, he sent his queen away and called in wives of inferior rank, his concubines. <laughs> Perhaps this is the historic clue to Vashti's Deny, indignant refusal, for she knew only too well the Persian custom dictated that a queen be secluded during the feast where rare wines flowed freely. So I'm going to stop there. But this is this is to get you the idea of how honorable Vashti was on this. This is not somebody who's just choosing to be disobedient, uh, and she's she is a woman of reading refinement. Uh, one who's going to say, I'm not supposed to show up this way. And so this is a huge deal for her. And as I said, the king probably would not have done this if he hadn't been totally drunk. And we're drunk basically out of his mind is what we would be, what we would say. And people, when they get drunk that way, do many things that they regret later. And we're going to see that he regretted what he's going to do because he also makes a decision in his drunken stupor. <laughs> And that's going to cause him problems because he did love his wife and he considered her the most beautiful person in the kingdom and so we just want to we want to bring this out this whole idea that 
He's getting drunk. He's doing it on purpose, which wasn't wasn't uncommon. Just as I said, you know, the queen would not be present during his. You know, it was one thing to be present, dressed up, you know, covered and everything, you know, sitting at his side during a normal everyday feast, but this was something that was totally different. He was coming out to get drunk. He was coming out to feast, and so this is a huge issue. And we look at this because. Even in the scriptures, the woman is told that they're to be submitted to their husband, and everybody is to be submitted to one another, and all these other all these things. But that submission does not include doing things that are illegal or immoral or even degrading, because that is not submission. That is subservience as a slave, basically, and that's not submission. And for all of us, we're to be submitted to our work, to our to our work, to our to our church, to one another, and here we're seeing Vashti saying, okay, submission has a limit. And it does have a limit. And she's being told to parade in any way, at least at the very minimum, to be paraded as a piece of meat in front of a drunken crowd that, you know, where they're seeing her face and her form, which she's not supposed to show off at all by custom, or all the way to the worst, which a lot of historians say that, you know, she was really being degraded in her appearance. And either way, she wasn't going to be submitted to that kind of treatment. And that's a godly virtue that she had. Even though she wasn't part of the Jewish family or anything, she, she had a godly virtue that says, I am not going to do this. And did she know the consequences of this action? Well, it maybe not as bad as it ended up, but she did know that she could be in trouble. You didn't violate a king's command without the possibility of a great punishment. And that's why I see her as a great, shining, virtuous woman. Because she knew, who knew, you know, he could have had her killed, you know, he could have had her, you know, banished or whatever, whatever. She knew there could, could and probably would be consequences to this refusal. And this is a great example for even us, for us as Christians. When we are challenged to do something wrong, are we willing to stand for God in spite of whatever consequences might come? And sometimes we're not. We should be, and we should be ready. I love it in, in uh, the book of Daniel when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are told to bow down to the golden idol. And I just love their answer because when King Nebuchadnezzar calls them up and goes, you know, who can, who can deliver you from me now? And their answer is classic. Our God can deliver us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, O King, King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down to the idol. And that is a great attitude to have. Can God deliver us from the consequences of us saying, I'm not going to disobey God? Yeah. Absolutely. Does he always? Mm -hmm. Not always. <laughs> you know, uh, the Bible is full of prophets and people who died for their belief. Okay? It is not a guarantee that because we do right, <laughs> that God will deliver us. Uh, he can, but he doesn't always. And if he doesn't, there's a plan and purpose in that. Fox's Book of Martyrs is filled with all kinds of examples of people who stood for God and didn't bow to the, to the emperors and the, and the idols and all of that, who paid with their life. Now, God got good out of it because he's using them as an example of how to stand for him, and many people got saved because they died. Now, what God has in store for us when we're we stand against, who knows? I've, I've lost jobs because I wanted, I stood with God. Because managers, owners, or usually owners, usually corporations didn't, but owners would ask me to do something that was not legal. And I'd tell them, no, I'm not going to, I can't. And most of them understood, but I've had one or two that said, nope, then you don't have a job. I go, well, then I don't have a job. And so this is a great example. Obedience does not always lead to being raised up. And we've got to keep that in mind. But if you go back to your story, and you stood for God, and, and the employer said, well, then you don't have a job. And you said, fine, no, I guess I don't have a job. God gave but me a job later. Yeah, yeah, he did raise you up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's always for our good. It's always going to be to raise, raise God's glory. Uh, in my case, I didn't have to pay for my life, but... But even paying with your life can be a blessing to somebody else when they look at that strength. 
And this is, we've talked often about the disciples, when they disobeyed the rulers. When they disobeyed, they knew that they'd be punished, because that's the government's job. The you know, government can make any law it wants, and if we disobey, even if it's to obey God, doesn't, mean, doesn't save us from the consequences of being disobedient. But their answer was always, thank you, God, that I've been worthy of suffering for you. And that's the important aspect. Are we willing to suffer? If that's what he wants us to do, are we willing to suffer to raise him up? And mm -hmm. hopefully the answer is yes, it should be. And here Vashti, I'm not attributing a godly, you know, hers was just a very strong moral conviction to I'm not going to parade myself in front of these, these drunken, this drunken orgy probably going on. And she and stood firm. Not while they were drunk, but after the fact, I'm sure the king realized that how right she was. Well, we're going to get there, yes. Right. He's going to regret his decision, but it's too late once he's made his... Right, made his decisions. Yeah, he made an edict that was permanent. Yeah, and you say they killed that guy that uh, that made that law. They ended up killing that guy too. On this one? No. No, he made. The, he's the one that kind of talked the king into doing. Yeah, there's. Yeah, we're going to get down to. We're going to get there in just a second here. I'm just laying the whole thing because usually Vashti's looking. Most most people when they teach about Vashti, they look at her as being obstinate and not submitted and all of these things, but there was, she was probably the most virtuous person in this whole story outside of Esther and Mordecai as things go on. Uh, she's very, she is a very virtuous woman. And just wanted to bring that out because you know, I've heard it taught that she was a terrible person and all that and I never have believed that. And the more research I did, I really don't believe it anymore. She was very virtuous, very uh, submitted person. And again, submission does not mean that you that you break laws or degrade yourself to be submitted, and so we're going to see this. Verse thirteen. And the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for so was the wise men, uh, the king's manner toward all that, that knew the law and judgment. And the next to him were Karshina, Sethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Merez, Merisna, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media media, which saw the king's face and which sat at the first in the kingdom. And the question he made to these men, what shall we, shall we do unto Vashti according to the law, because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains? This is, this is a weird thing, you know, he's, he's, he has rule over, he's a great general, he has rule over all these people. Number one, he doesn't have control of his own his own his own desires because he's getting himself drunk and partying for over half a year. Uh, in his drunken drunkenness, he makes bad decisions, which happens all the time for people when they get in their drunkenness. They make bad decisions that they're going to pay for sometimes for the rest of their life, or, or at the very least the next day when they can't function because they're hungover, and maybe much worse if they do dumb things on the way home or drive or you know have accidents, but he's going to his leaders, and they said they were next to him, and they were probably in this party too, so these seven wise men aren't very wise at the moment either, because they're drunk, and he's asking for a decision according to law for a family problem. So you, you see the hilariousness, almost hilariousness of this, you know, hey, you know, this is the queen, this is a family problem, she's not listening to her husband or the king, and he goes, what, what are we going to do with her according to the law? And the law doesn't usually cover family problems like this. But we're going to see their answer. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported that the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought before him, and she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and, and Media say, unto, say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. All right. Basically they're saying that people are going to hear about what Vashti did, and the women are all going to do the same thing. They're not going to come to their husband's call. 
Now, the circumstances were very different. Most of the women would have realized exactly what she had been refusing to do. And, but it also shows quite a bit the fear of men you know, toward their women in their life, you know, that they're not in control. And this also shows that the power women have over their men. And, and most women don't understand the full power. I hope they, some of them don't understand the full power they have over their men because women can totally emasculate their, the men in their life sometimes by their... What is emasculate? Make, make them less than a man to, to make them less manly. And I've seen it. I've seen families where the woman has dominated her husband so much that he started out, they loved him because he was a, could make decisions, and then argued every decision he made, and then you look at him 10, 20 years later, and the man is so meek he won't make a single decision in, in his life. And the scriptures go into, it's a partnership. The man is the head of the house. He makes, you know, he's the one that's going to be responsible for the decisions, but a good husband is always going to look to his wife and say, what do you think about this? What so, is your opinion? So when a, when a strong-willed woman comes in and beats a man down, that she's taking his meekness? Going to take his, take his authority and his, and his strength away from him? And that will leave him meek. Men, men are pretty, men are pretty, they don't like to be known at it, but men are pretty easily destroyed in their opinions of themselves. And... This happens a lot of times in especially strong-willed women who aren't, aren't wanting to be submitted. They can, they can beat down a man to the point where he won't make any decisions. And it's not a good thing. And it's hard. And uh, I've, seen, I've seen men who, are, who go and they're married for a long time and they just will not make a decision right. anymore. Ask they won't boss. lead. <laughs> yeah, got to ask their wife for everything. Got to ask the boss. Yeah. And if we look at it, that's a lot of what humor is involved with, and it's part of what Satan has tried to do to, to marriages is to destroy that godly given one. And again, submission isn't that the man rules over the wife with an iron fist. If he's doing that, he's dumb in the first place. Mm -hmm. He needs to get his wife's opinion. And I love to get my wife's opinion because she understands people better than I do. Right. <laughs> Much better than I do. So if it's dealing with people, I want her opinion when dealing with people. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to finances... I have the strength in the finances, but she, I want her to know what's going on in the finances and have things to say about it. But, but it's very important. That is what God says when we're submitted one to another. We get the opinions. We work on it. But ultimately, to be submitted means that whether I like the decision or not, I'm submitted to that person. And submission has the greatest power of God holds them accountable, <laughs> the person who's in charge. So it's basically like loyalty. I mean, to a degree. When it comes down to it, the man makes the decision and the woman just goes with it. And the bottom line, yes. Uh, and one of the greatest examples in, in this type of submission thing is in the military. Mm -hmm. You do what you're told by the superiors, and if it's wrong, you know, it ends up being wrong. The one who gets in trouble the way it's supposed to work doesn't always. The one who gets in trouble is the person who told you what to do. And because there, it's almost like an umbrella over you. As long as you stay under that submitted umbrella, you are protected by the person, by the person above you all the, all the way up. Right. And if you go outside the umbrella, it's like, well, what are you doing out there? You were told to be doing, well, that was not the right decision, but that was what you were told to do. And so submission actually is a very beautiful thing in, in many senses. And not that it works the way it's always supposed to. You know, sometimes you're thrown under, you know, our term thrown under the bus. Right. Uh, Chain you know, of command, right? Huh? Chain of command. You're Chain of command, basically. You're supposed to be covered by your boss, but sometimes they'll go, oh, it was, you know, I didn't tell them to do that. They did all, you know, you know. But it works this way, and the God says that it works this way. In a church, the, the, they've got Jesus, you've got the pastor, and then you've got the people. And the pastor's making decisions for all the people in the church. And when they're submitted to the pastor, there's that covering. Even if he makes the wrong decision, and, you know, that's not what God wanted them to do, not necessarily wrong, illegally wrong, but he just, just goes a direction that God didn't want him. He's the one that... You're in trouble. He's the one that's in trouble. Right. And when God comes to, to, to... And when we come to judgment, I, as a pastor, I'm going to be answerable for everything I've done with this church. And the people under the church, as long as they have followed and, and been submitted... 
they'll be covered by the fact that they did. And in my family, I'm responsible for my family as a covering for my wife and for my kids. And what I've done with them or not done <laughs> with them falls upon me. And if you go outside of your submitted covered covering, then you're on your own. Then you've got to say, well, what were you doing out there? You were supposed to be over here. Well, I didn't think that was, you know, and that's the hard part. Being submitted when somebody's doing what you want is easy. <laughs> well, I like that idea. I'm not going to, I'm just going to do it. The hard part is to say submitted when you don't like or don't believe it's going in the right direction. And I've had that experience in, in, in one particular church where I didn't agree with the pastor and where he was taking the church. And I had to learn, as long as God kept me in that church, to be submitted to his direction. Now, that doesn't mean I was silent to the pastor. I went to the pastor many times to tell him I thought he was wrong and headed the wrong way. But to the other people in the church, I did not express right. my disagreements because I was being submitted. And being submitted when you don't agree is the hard, <laughs> the hardest thing. Okay, and we're not saying be submitted. You know, Vashti's a great example. He was, she was being told to do something that was wrong, <laughs> wrong morally, wrong by the customs, wrong by the laws of the land. So for her refusal was proper. <laughs> okay, uh, it wasn't like he just wanted to say, oh, "I want you to show up dressed as you are, so everybody could see." <laughs> you know, this bag of clothes, <laughs> right. you know, he's telling her to do much, much more than that. And she refuses. And that's, you know, again, it's not, it's not being obedient, but it is being proper. And there's times when that is true. If, if you're in a church and the pastor's that going off the wrong direction illegally, you say, no, we're not, we're not going there. Right. Well, that goes to the same thing where do you follow men or are you going to follow God? Mm -hmm. Right. It's the same exact, exact thing. We follow God as our primary. But we need to be sure that if we're going to be disobedient, we're ready for the punishment that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. Just as the disciples were. They were always ready for the punishment because they, they did disobeyed government and they were to be submitted to government. But the government told them to not do what the God told them to. So they had a dilemma there. Do I obey God or do I obey the government? I obey God. Okay, now I obey God. Now I get beat <laughs> and thrown into jail because I disobeyed the government. And because even though we're obeying God does not mean that we are free from the discipline that comes for that disobedience because they were placed by God even as bad as they were and this is where but we're generally at generally speaking if you're if, if you're following all of God's laws then you're within man's laws usually usually but man can man is sinful so oftentimes they go off in the wrong direction and we we're seeing that we saw that with the disciples we're seeing that here we saw that in Daniel uh, with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego we saw it when he was with Cyrus and was running into the lion's den because people tricked him into tricked Cyrus into making a law saying you can't pray to anybody but the king mm -hmm. so yeah we see in general as long as people are doing what's right following God's laws should be obeying men's laws but as a government, especially a government, gets more and more evil, as it always does, all through history, they always get more and more evil, and more and more ungodly things become the, the norm and the way to do things, then we have to make decisions and say, we're going to follow God and be in trouble with the government. And even in America, we're starting to see that move going on very strongly. Uh, God says homosexuality is wrong. The government says it's right. There's going to be disobedience from true Bible-believing Christians to say, no, I can't honor that. I, I give them their right to have, be wrong and their right to do what they want, but I am not going to do certain things. You know, as a pastor, I'm not going to marry them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to recognize their right to be mm -hmm. special privileged as far as marriage, uh, as far as I can go. I'm not going to go march against them and, and decry them, but I'm also going to say God's law is prevalent. And if it comes down to the place where they say, well, I cannot say that homosexuality is a sin, I'm going to say, sorry, God says it's a sin, and I'll deal, I will take the consequences. If they come in here wanting to get married, no, they're not going to get married by me because I just won't. You know, no matter what the consequences are on that, I won't do it. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing these, and it's going to get worse and worse mm -hmm. as this world heads toward the end days, and it's going to get more and more evil. It's going to be like Noah's day where everybody does what was right in their own, every inclination of their heart was to do wrong. 
and they did what was right in their own eyes. And they were marrying. And marrying, yeah, well, mar they, they just did everything. I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it was homosexual marriage in that statement. It was just, when, when God sent the flood, they were living their normal lives, is what that was meaning. Giving birth, giving, having, getting married, you know, having parties. They were just going about their normal day-to-day -day living. Uh, but God oftentimes does not say that we're going to be protected from everything that goes on. And when the, the society is righteous, then you're following God and you're going to fall underneath authority all the way along. But there's going to be those times when men are evil. Just plain and simple. We're sinners. God tells us we're all sinners and sinners sin. <laughs> And when sinners are when sinners are in authority, they're going to do what bad decisions a lot of times. And this is why it's important for us as Christians to, especially in America, where we can vote our leaders, we need to vote biblically. <laughs> Look at our leaders and say, who stands closest to what I believe from the scriptures and vote for them. And that doesn't mean I'm going to tell anybody what to vote, but look at the Bible and compare them to <laughs> what the Bible says. And there's some very clear... Test. Very clear winners and losers in, in our current crop of presidential candidates when you put them up against the Bible. Mm -hmm. And they're not always the number one leaders in there that are, that are going to pass the biblical test. Right. And so we want to be able to look at that and say, here's a good godly leader. And this is who we want to run our country. Unfortunately, most of the godly people will not be elected. They probably won't get to nominated. Or oh, they're not even on the ballot in a lot of cases. But... Here we're seeing he's going to his drunken wise men <laughs> who, are, who, are, who are in fear. You know, hey, if, if, every, if all the women find out what Vashti did, mm -hmm. they're going to tell their husbands to the same thing. We're not, we're not doing, you know, and they're taking her issue and expanding upon it. She's a bad example. Well, they're saying she was a bad example, but she was actually a great example. <laughs> but the men are just seeing their authority, you know, hey, you know, this is a woman who stood up to, a king that basically this is a king that nobody said no to okay well, i'm sure the community twisted it around. oh it was twisted around big well they're afraid the community is going to twist it around you know in a big way and this is a king that nobody said no to all right and men didn't say no to him and his queen has said no to him okay this is a guy that said jump and you asked him how high and tried to go twice as high as he said uh, he was not. He was not opposed to flogging somebody for disagreeing with him, and here Vashti is saying, "No, I'm not coming to parade around in front of your drunken friends." And so they're 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 very concerned with this and blowing it out of proportion because it really wouldn't have been. And it says, "Likewise, the ladies of Persian in verse 18. Likewise, the ladies of Persian and Media would say unto the king's princes that we." that they shall arise and do much contempt and wrath. And ladies here literally mean nobles. They're not talking about the ladies in the street and the, and the farms. They're talking about the, the members of the court, basically, and their, own, and their own wives. That's who they're worried about now is if the SD can get away with it, maybe our wives will say, think they can get away with not listening to us. And their answer to all this is, if, the king, if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it is not altered that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate to an, unto another that is better than she and when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all the empire for it is great all the wives shall give to their husbands honor both great and small and the same please the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters unto the king's provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and every people in their, after their language, and every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the languages, language of every person. So he just set out a decree saying Vashti was going to be deposed. That was the guy, Memucan. Memucan, that was his advice. Uh, and so it says that Vashti was, to, was not able to come before the king and, every, and her royal properties, her, her, her title, her, her, her portion of the palace, whatever, was to be given to another. And I, and I find the interest in better than she. Uh, you know, here's a virtuous, honorable woman. And you go, go find somebody better than her. Uh, that's going to be quite a trick. And... 
they meant, they meant better by... They meant who better to who would be obedient. Right. If the king called, would come. Exactly. Their, main, their, their word for better was that, you know, somebody who, when he calls, he, she will come. She'll drop. Right? And she will do whatever he says to do. And that's what they meant. But, you know, I'm looking at her moral fiber. Mm-hmm. And she, there's probably, even in Esther's case, probably not better than she. Esther's probably in the equal moral fiber, but not, not necessarily better. But you're right. Their, their word for better is somebody that would just do as she's told. Right. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether it's moral or... Or correct we just want somebody who king calls she comes <laughs> and we see then then they publish this throughout all the kingdom in all the different languages and we're going to see that this whole thing is blows up and we're going to see that he's going to regret this in the next chapters as we go on but this idea of how Vashti was so noble so so regal she was actually the epitome of a virtuous regal princely you know she was every bit of princess in this, saying, I'm not going to go degrade myself. And she ends up being punished for this. And scholars have tried to find out anything about Vashti. Uh, and we know already very few times, that we know very few women's names in the Bible, period. So it's very impressive that she's named, because that's unusual. But even in history, women just weren't named oftentimes in the script, in, in documents anywhere. So they have not been able to find out what happened to Vashti after she was disposed. Did she get exiled? Did she get put down into the to the concubine level where she just stayed with the rest of the women? Was she executed? We see Xerxes' love for her after, you know, and, and his regret for his decision. I have this feeling that she was just demoted down into the general population of the women and never again seen before the king, you know, because many Once of the women... it's decreed, it's decreed. There is no changing. Yeah, she couldn't come back in front of him. You know, she could not come back in front of him. So she was either executed so that she could never do it, or she was demoted and just kept in with the other concubines and wives. Oftentimes they had so many wives, they saw them one time, and that was the only time they ever saw them. And they just stayed in one, one big harem, as, as they're known, in one big room where all the women were kept. And the king would go in and pick who he wanted to sleep with that night. Right. Uh, and usually would have a favorite that, would see, you know, that he'd see on a regular basis or a couple favorites. So she, she might have been demoted to that level. She might have been executed. We don't know. And been curious because people have tried to find out. And what happened to this woman for her disobedience? What was the final result? And I don't, and the scriptures didn't tell us because it was really irrelevant to the whole story. Mm-hmm. Because basically, this the story of Vashti is to set up how did Queen Esther become become his favorite favorite wife, and so Vashti was just there saying she was, and now she isn't, because she disobeyed. Even though she disobeyed with honor and dignity, she disobeyed and and lost her position, which allows for Esther to be raised up into position. And we're going to go ahead and close in prayer. We've had our hour. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at the scriptures. Lord, we thank you for just the showing of us that even when we do right, it may not be rewarded with, with what we think of as good, but you say all things work together for good. And, and we just thank you for that. And we ask you to go with us as we leave today. In Jesus' name, amen.